Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for being with us. We've got a hell of a program coming up tonight, but before we get to that, extraordinary observations at the inquest in Sydney into this mysterious disappearance of the fraudster Melissa Caddick. Concerns about why police failed to grill her husband about inconsistencies in his version of events. What he had done on the day of her disappearance on November 12, 2020. Why did he use his wife's phone to text the cleaner telling her not to come that day, the day that his wife vanished. And although she had been missing for 30 hours, the husband didn't report her disappearance until she failed to turn up at a federal court hearing. The inquest heard that despite being made aware that the initial police who interviewed the husband, Coletti, said he made inconsistent statements, was flustered by police questions, was evasive and vague and, quote, sweating profusely, the policeman who was initially in charge of the investigation said he thought it was more likely that Caddick had gone into hiding or had self-harmed due to the stress of the investigation into her fraud. The detective told the inquest he didn't think Caddick's disappearance was suspicious. The detective said he accepted Coletti's reasons as to why he waited for nearly 30 hours to report his wife missing. The detective was replaced as the officer in charge after the first week. On the political front, the pendulum might be shifting. Sweden's coalition of right-wing parties looks set to secure a narrow victory in a general election that promises to rewrite the political map of Sweden. It said the gains by Swedish nationalists are emblematic of a broader shift in European politics. Now remember, in the French election, while Macron's alliance remained the largest bloc, the far-right national rally fared much better than was expected. And in Italy, the right-wing Brothers of Italy party leads a right-wing coalition that looks poised for a landslide win in the September 25 elections. Conservative Australian politicians everywhere, get off your backsides. Say something different from the views of the left. There are millions of disenchanted voters looking for a political home. Give it to them. And before I go any further, may I sadly report the death in late August of a former Australian rugby captain and athletic prodigy, Jim Lenehan, who died at his property in Harden in New South Wales at the age of 84. Jim Lenehan would call himself a Riverina grazier, but educated at St Ignatius College Riverview, he will forever be regarded as one of the greatest schoolboy athletes this nation has ever seen. He played firsts rugby and firsts cricket for four years unheard of. He won the open shot put way back in 1956, throwing the shot 57 feet and a bit, a record that stood for 43 years. He won the 120 yards hurdles and that record stood for 53 years. He was a magnificent fullback or centre, along with the great Terry Curley from the opposition St Joseph's College. The school classics master wrote of Jim Lenehan's talents and I quote, six feet tall, and 14 stone heavy, schoolboy, 14 stone heavy, he was a frightening figure as he thundered onto Mick Hardy's passes when he joined the back line. Lenehan returned the kicks of St Joseph's pulled fullback 
Terry Curley, like Zeus, sending out his thunderbolts from Olympus, unquote. Zeus, of course, was the thunder god in the ancient Greek religion who ruled as king as the gods of Mount Olympus. Jimmy Lenehan has died at the age of 84 on August 27. I suspect the rugby grounds of the world are a little less green. Having said that, plenty on tonight to command your interest. Stay with me. You are on ADH. I'm Alan Jones. At 2am this morning, our time, which was five o'clock in the afternoon in Edinburgh, the Royal Air Force began its flight with the Queen's coffin from Edinburgh Airport to RAF Northolt, just north of Heathrow Airport. The Queen had travelled the Royal Mile in Edinburgh for the last time. The Royal Mile runs from, as I've told you, the Royal Residence in Edinburgh, the Palace of Holyrood, Holyrood House they call it, uphill to St Giles Cathedral and then onto Edinburgh Castle. Look at those people. There is tremendous history around the Royal Mile. Mary Queen of Scots led a grand procession there. Traitors and criminals were hanged there. Queen Elizabeth had made the journey up the Edinburgh Royal Mile before riding in a carriage with Prince Philip. But Monday night, she travelled half the length of the Scots Mile, one final time to St Giles Cathedral. Lining the Royal Mile were people who loved her and who wanted to witness this moment for themselves. There were undoubtedly others there who wanted to see their king, determined to watch him carry the weight of his grief for his mother, knowing that he's dedicated himself to spend the rest of his life trying to live up to her legacy. While Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, is pushing for another vote on Scottish independence, in the crowd in Edinburgh, it was hard to find anyone who actively wanted to leave the union. In a moving metaphor of family grief, behind the procession were King Charles III, Princess Anne, Prince Edward and Prince Andrew. For the first time, the siblings walked the mile as the oldest living generation in the royal line. One man at the front of the crowd was in a wheelchair, 86. He tried to salute the late queen. As a young man, he'd guarded the royal children as part of his Royal Scots posting at Balmoral. He said, and I quote, you can't catch your breath, you're just speechless, I'm struggling for words, unquote. The service at St Giles was broadcast over speakers, but as one writer said, there was nothing to see if you're outside but stonework and soldiers standing guard. The packed crowd remained quiet in order to hear the service. They joined in the Lord's Prayer and the final rendition of God save the King. Then the public were able to personally pay their respects to their late Queen as the body lay in St Giles Cathedral. The people of Edinburgh lined up through the night to bid her a final farewell. And so at 2am this morning, our time, the Queen's coffin was flown to London. Princess Anne, who's been a rock of loyalty, devotion and grief through all of this, the only daughter, accompanied the coffin on the flight. It landed early this morning, our time, about 5am, and was transported by car to Buckingham Palace and placed on trestles in the bow room where the various chaplains to the King are taking turns in keeping watch over the coffin. At Buckingham Palace later today, the Imperial State Crown will be placed on the coffin along with a wreath of flowers before the procession begins from Buckingham Palace to Westminster in about three hours time, 2.20 p.m. their time. As in Edinburgh, the King will walk behind the coffin. It'll be placed on a gun carriage 
of the King's Troop Royal Horse Artillery. It'll journey from the Queen's Gardens, down the Mall, up Horse Guards and Horse Guards Arch, down Whitehall and Parliament Street, through Parliament Square, and then enter the Parliamentary Estate via the new Palace Yard. Big Ben will toll during the entirety of the procession. The coffin will be placed inside the 900-year-old Westminster Hall, which is not only the oldest building in the Parliament, in the Palace of Westminster, but it's the only part of the ancient palace, the seat of the British Parliament, which survives in almost its original form. There, in a few hours' time, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Dean of Westminster will conduct a short service. Four days of lying in state will then begin, where the public will have the opportunity to visit Westminster Hall to pay their respects. While there were unprecedented numbers in Edinburgh, it's believed that queues descending on Westminster will extend for up to eight kilometres. Queuing times, they say, could reach 20 hours. That is, 20 hours before you get into Westminster Hall. The public will be able to file past the coffin in Westminster Hall 24 hours a day from Wednesday night until the morning of the funeral next Monday. It's expected the number of people on the streets of London will rival the estimated one million who came out for the funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales. As many as 10,000 police officers will be deployed in London and army bomb disposal teams will be on standby. Up to 1,500 soldiers will be available to control the crowds with personnel from all three services and they will assist thousands of stewards who line the route and the queue will be closed if there are too many people. The cabinet office is preparing for, quote, the very real possibility, unquote, that London will become full for the first time to such an extent that network rail and transport for London may tell passengers not to attempt to travel to the capital. A seven page guide has been issued in the expectation that at least 750,000 people will want to pay their respects. The guide states, amongst other things, that people should, quote, respect the dignity of the event and behave appropriately, unquote. I guess on that matter, only time will tell. Well, let's go to David Maddox, the political editor of Express Online. We hear him every week. He speaks splendidly, but you can also read him. He writes beautifully too, and right up to date, express.co.uk. Well, David, firstly, our commiserations and sympathies to all of you over there in Britain at the death of Queen Elizabeth. London, I guess, about to be inundated, David. It certainly is, and thanks very much, Alan. And of course, she was, you know, Australia's head of state yeah, as was. well, and um, and uh, uh, and twelve other countries. And it's, uh, you know, it's a day, um, of course, inevitably was going to come, uh, but none of us really believed it was going to happen. You know, there was uh, there was a certain, uh, uh, I think Boris Johnson summed it up quite nicely in Parliament. There was a certain eternal quality about mm. her that, uh, you know, she seemed to be able to kind of keep going and keep going. Uh, yes, I mean, London is already inundated. I mean, uh, Green Park near to Buckingham Palace is um, absolutely strewn with flowers which have been laid uh, by uh, well-wishers and uh, people mourning yes. their death. I mean... Uh, and uh, today, uh, bodies going into Parliament to lie in state in Westminster Hall. Yeah. And there's going to be... 
before, be, yeah, before going, hours, before going, yeah, before the funeral on Monday, mm. and they can issue a line. Wait, I made comment about that earlier tonight. Yeah. Uh, what I think is clear, though, with the death of a monarch, there's, there are massive plan. There is massive planning that's gone on behind the scenes for years and years and years, hasn't it? I mean, mm. uh, an impressive speech in Westminster Hall by Charles, which he apparently wrote himself. It has swung significant support behind the monarchy. They saw a different Charles, didn't they? They did. And, and you know, for years and years, this has been the worry uh, that, that, you know, as Prince of Wales, Charles was very interfering in politics, was very outspoken on issues. And, of course, that, you know, the great quality of the Queen was that she was able to rise above politics. Nobody really knew what her political views were. And it was a great stabilising force. I and mean, there was a lot of worry that, uh, a King, that King Charles would be a destabilising force because of his uh, pronounced views on the various subjects. But actually, he has, he's really played a blinder. Absolutely. Uh, uh, straight in. And, and, and it's, I think he's reassured a lot of people in his address to the mm. nation and his address to Parliament, of a joint sitting of Parliament, that, that he's going to be... A true constitutional yep. king. He's following in Quite. his mother's non-intervention. Non non-intervention, uh, David. Mm. It is a massive ask. Let's just get down to the really basic human elements of this. It is a massive ask, is it not, within any family, to expect the number one son Charles, the number one daughter Anne, to be so closely mm. involved with the death of their mother and withhold all emotion. It is, it is. And, and actually, I, I think we've seen some of the emotion kind of coming up uh, with Charles at various points. Uh, I mean, they, 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 were, they were kind of, to be fair, brought up in that old-fashioned yeah. way, that stiff upper lip um, uh, way. But uh, it's, we've seen with some of King Charles's interactions with the crowds and things, mm. but the emotion is there. And, uh, no, it's, it's very difficult because, of course, he's been in the public eye Virtually non-stop now yes. since last it's Thursday. A punishing, yes. punishing yeah. itinerary they've set for him and for Camilla. I just thought it was very moving, though, when the coffin passed Anne in Edinburgh on its way to St Giles and she mm. made that deep curtsy and I thought, poof, mm. this, this is tough stuff, yeah. tough stuff. Uh, it really is. Memories, of course, of, and I think you've written about this, memories of his mother. He addressed Westminster Hall, 900 years old, massive it is, Westminster Hall and the oldest building, the only original building in the Palace of Westminster. But there's the stained glass window celebrating the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. And he's speaking, and this is surrounding him, the fountain outside the door, you've commented on this, of Westminster Hall for yeah. a silver jubilee, the sundial for the golden jubilee. And then as the body will be moved from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall in about three hours time from the broadcast here, about 2.20 in the afternoon, your time. And then the King again will walk behind the coffin. Oh, it's a heavy, it's a heavy yeah. burden. It really is. And yes, and he was literally surrounded by memories of his mother there and uh, if, as he was speaking, he was looking up at the. Uh, there's a great stained glass window that was installed for the Diamond Jubilee. It's a beautiful window, actually, in Westminster Hall. So he was literally looking at that. Uh, but there is other history there. I mean, it's it's a building that was erected in 1097. Yes. It's been the home of kings and, uh, yes. and politicians for nine centuries. 
You know, it, it, they're, they're, this is the place where yeah. his namesake, Charles I, literally stood trial. That's it, so, was beheaded. You know, it's a, it's a, um, it was sentenced to death. Yes. So, you know, there's a, there's a historic reminder there oh, of yes. what could go wrong if you're yes. not a good king. Yes. <laughs> and, of course, Charles Charles II, who was a complete playboy and uh, basically had 11 Ill- illegitimate children and not one of them mm. was able to succeed him to the throne. But we hope this Charles certainly doesn't follow down that path. Look, I thought it was true what Sir Lindsay Hoyle from up the north, the House of Commons speaker said, the monarchy mm. is a symbol of constancy in an ever-changing world. And as you just said, I mean, Queen Elizabeth rose above politics. No one really knew, did they, what she believed politically. Although I made a comment elsewhere, no. I thought it was very interesting when she had audience with Sir Anthony Eden, she would have been very, very young at the time. She was the mm. Queen. and. Sir Anthony Eden said to advise the Queen that the government, the British government, is going to do something and is going to intervene in the Suez crisis. And she reportedly said, do you think so? Which basically was the closest she got to saying, I don't think that's a good idea. But no one really knew how, what she believed politically, did they? No, and, and there were two causes which were always associated with her. Uh, um, I mean, the only political things which were ever associated with her, uh, first of all, was a belief in the Commonwealth and her love for the Commonwealth. And she did all sorts of things to promote and keep that together and to nurture it. Uh, and second was uh, the uh, to, it was to keep the United Kingdom together. Mm. And uh, well, Charles has done that splendidly, hasn't things. he, by visiting? He has. He has. Yeah. He has. And yeah. I, I couldn't help but and, feel. And, 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 Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, and you could see just in these first, these first few days of his of his kingship, he he is he's worked very hard to yeah. do both those things. He yeah. had the high commissioners in very quickly. Yes. There's some talk, by the way, and mm. uh, that uh, I see. I think in the Australian newspaper that. Uh, the new Prince and Princess of Wales talking are about, heading down under yeah. as well. But I mean, he, you're talking yeah. about keeping the kingdom together. I mean, he firstly yeah. addressed the House of Commons and the House of Lords at Westminster Hall. Then he went mm. up to Scotland and addressed the Scottish Parliament up there yeah. and responded to the condolence motion. Then they went over to Camilla and Charles to Ireland. I think tomorrow they're off to Wales, aren't they? Or Friday they're off to Wales. Yeah, but, Friday they're off to Wales, yeah. yeah. But what yeah. is Nicola Sturgeon up to? I mean... I have to tell you, I have difficulty abiding this woman, but the BBC <laughs> coverage of the late Queen's death and last journey, constantly referring to Nicola Sturgeon's independence agenda. Uh, and the mm. coverage of the Queen's mm. funeral was supposed to be disconnected from politics. Does this confirm that yes. many voters believe the BBC is politically biased? Uh, I think, it, I actually think it was ignorance in a way. Uh, they just, Took it as a matter of fact, rather than questioning, right. uh, questioning it all. And it's part of this slow creep that the kind of nationalist version of Scotland is a version of Scotland, rather than the, the, right. the majority version of Scotland, which is that it's part of the United Kingdom. Yeah. And a lot of the Scottish MPs from pro-union parties have been very upset. Yes. Yes, I mean, these constant references to the independence question, but if you witnessed the reaction as the coffin travelled the Royal Mile in Edinburgh, Mm. it was hard to find anyone who actively wanted to leave the United Kingdom. And I note you quoted one Scottish MP saying, the BBC's been woeful, why do they dance to the nationalist tune? Uh, I mean, by the way, they could always watch us on ADH, 
Couldn't they, David? They could watch us on ADH wherever they <laughs> exactly. are in the world. Wherever they are in the world. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and now, yeah. and I, but actually, I think I think King Charles is bad news for Nicholas Sturgeon. A lot of Scottish yes. politicians do as well, because his events, the way he's behaved afterwards, the things that he's done, uh, it's it's kind of reinforced Scotland's place within the United Kingdom, but, you know, maintaining its own identity. Yes. And it's, uh, uh, the monarchy has uh, very much been the kind of cement which has kept it together. You, you, you made a comment before, which I thought was very interesting, how the Queen was fastidious about protecting the Commonwealth. I can't help but feel she most probably was a Brexit supporter because once England mm. was removed from the European Union. There was an opportunity for England to do trade deals, which they've done with us, well, already with Australia, mm. with Commonwealth countries. I can't help but feel that was something the Queen would have approved of. I, I think it was. I mean, it was a story that she supported Brexit, uh, which uh, uh, Buckingham Palace kind of danced a, a bit of a jig around, uh, trying to deny, but not quite denying it. Yes. And uh, it was... Uh, and, and it does come down to her love of the Commonwealth and actually her belief that we should be looking out to the wider world, not just to this kind of fortress Europe. Very difficult to pin down, but it, it certainly fitted with it. And mm. and actually, if you look at what's happened with the UK since Brexit, I mean, it's been limited because of a pandemic and things. But, uh, you know, the earliest things we've done is reach out to the Commonwealth, with the, mm. you know, the trade deals with yeah. Uh, Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Uh, there's one with Canada coming as well. Uh, and these are the obvious places yeah, to go. Absolutely. Well, David, we'll leave it there. I suspect that you're going to, notwithstanding your tremendous experience, you're about to see scenes in London that you most probably haven't seen in your lifetime and may never seen, see again. I mean, uh, the Queen's body, the coffin, returns to London today mm. and it arrives at the Palace yeah. of Westminster and there we are, it'll lie in state and people will be able to pay their respects. They're talking about queues being eight, nine, ten miles long, massive security yeah. operations. And it's a measure of the respect and regard in which this wonderful, wonderful woman was held. So, David, we'll look forward to yeah. talking to you next week. But in the days ahead, all the best to you and your fellow colleagues in Britain. Thanks, Alan. Thanks. David Maddox, wonderful insights there. They're very moving moments, aren't they, from today when the body, the coffin now moves to Westminster Hall and it'll stay there, the lion's state, until it's moved on the morning of the funeral next Monday to Westminster Abbey. I can't pretend to have combed every media source today, but it's instructive to note that yesterday a Roy Morgan poll was published, but very few media outlets have covered the story. Perhaps that's not surprising because it was conducted entirely after Prince Charles took the oath at the weekend to become King Charles III. It was conducted on Monday with an Australia-wide cross-section of over 1,000 Australians. And Australians were asked, quote, in your opinion, should Australia remain a monarchy or become a republic with an elected president, unquote. Well, the money didn't read about it because an increasing majority of Australians, 60%, up five percentage points since November 10 years ago, 60% support the monarchy. And only 40% down five percentage points say Australia should become a republic with an elected president. So that there is one Labor policy, 
I guess, that will hit the bin. But back to the biggest policy issue currently facing the country. And there are some big ones, debt, cost of living, interest rates, harvesting water amongst them. None is greater or more critical and more ideologically and destructive than this energy policy, which has been legislated through the parliament. It is law, 82% renewables by 2030. So once the stuff hits the fan, who's going to be punished in the most draconian manner in order to hit that target? This is a simple story with diabolical consequences, the transition from coal to renewable energy. They'll try to brainwash us by talking about storage or Snowy Hydro 2.0. You can forget Snowy Hydro, it's in the never, never, if ever. And the big battery argument is so irrelevant as to almost juvenile. Big battery storage is negligible compared with the amount of power in the grid and consumed every day. So we then come to wind and solar. Well, got news for you, Chris Bowen, but you wouldn't know, you've never set foot west of the Great Dividing Range. Wind droughts alone will make it impossible to reach the legislated energy targets by 2030. All Australia, except Chris Bowen and Anthony Albanese, know that for several times a year, there are periods with next to no wind across the whole of southeastern Australia. Wind droughts, which one writer has described as icebergs in the path of the renewable energy Titanic. Who pays attention to wind, apart from sailors and perhaps spin bowlers and those who own racehorses? But there are dedicated wind watchers who for some time have been warning about these icebergs. But as Rafe Champion writes, and I quote, the captain and passengers of the renewable energy Titanic remain blissfully unaware of the approaching calamity, unquote. He makes the very legitimate analogy that the supply of wind is critical for wind power in the same way that water supply is required for irrigation. But the wind power industry has been built without properly contemplating the impact of these wind droughts. He further adds, and correctly, people have developed a false, people have developed a false sense of security because when Australia had more than enough conventional power from coal and gas to back up the renewables grid, it didn't matter whether the sun shone or the wind blew. And further, quote, over the last two decades, a large number of coal power stations have closed in southeastern Australia, while most of those that remain are approaching the end of their working lives. We have reached a critical tipping point, unquote. Well, as you know, we live with the demonization of coal. There's no incentive to invest, not in this environment. Which banks drowning in wokeism will lend for a coal-fired project? There are high efficiency, low emission, coal-fired power plants being built around the world using our thermal coal from the Hunter Valley. Well, the lesson is simple, and I'll keep saying it. And I don't apologise for being right. If we lose more fossil fuel capacity from the grid, our power supply will fail every time when there's not enough wind or solar power available to meet peak demands at breakfast and dinner time. And again, as Rafe Champion writes, the records show quite clearly that these renewable energy droughts happen often and there will not be enough power. And, quote, when the next coal-fired power station closes, every wind drought will threaten the power supply integrity and prolonged wind droughts will be potentially catastrophic, unquote. 
But as he rightly says, and I've said this over and over again, what is the response of nitwits like Chris Bowen, who wants to accelerate the rollout of windmills and solar panels, which make no contribution to the grid on windless nights? Or to use a clever analogy, building more capacity doesn't help any more than having a big petrol tank in a car helps when the tank is empty. You can't capture what's not being created. What this means in simple terms is this, but Chris Bowen is too much of a know-all to admit it. The reality of wind droughts has been completely neglected in planning the electricity system of tomorrow. Well, this may seem far removed from the matters of the day, but because of my past commentary, it occupies a lot of the correspondence to me. The issue is simple. The disappearance of the Malaysia Airlines flight MH370, which went missing in March 2014. Now, in 2020, in a documentary on all of this, the senior public servant Martin Dolan, the former chief commissioner of the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, and the man in charge of the search for the Malaysian Airlines flight, admitted that the $200 million search, it's your money, $200 million search for MH370 may have failed because he and the Australian Transport Safety Bureau refused to accept that the flight's captain had hijacked his own aircraft. He conceded, Dolan did, that new evidence increasingly proves that the ATSB's theory that the flight was unpiloted at the end was incorrect. He admitted that independent experts, including people like Byron Bailey, who's written to me any number of times, a former RWF pilot who was senior captain with Emirates for 15 years, he has flown the same model B777 as MH370. And the dominant opinion put by people like Byron Bailey and other commercial airline pilots who know this scene backwards is that MH370 was hijacked by its captain. Byron Bailey has said over and over again that a rogue pilot likely depressurized the aircraft to kill the passengers and crew through oxygen deprivation, while he alone in the cockpit had a much longer oxygen supply. Now, Tony Abbott was the Australian Prime Minister when all this happened. He argued later on in 2020 that he had been told, quote, by the very top levels of the Malaysian government that from very, very early on, they thought it was a murder-suicide by the pilot, said the former Prime Minister Abbott. It was crystal clear to me that they had a very clear understanding that this almost certainly was what happened, unquote. This promise, uh, prompted comments from one of the Malaysian government's most senior figures, Lim Kit Siang, to call for an international inquiry into the plane's disappearance. Well, nothing really has happened. And the most important point for such an inquiry would be to answer the simple question. Why did the Malaysian and Australian governments persist with searching the wrong place and ignoring the murder-suicide theory, unquote? Now, I've covered this issue many, many times. I've spoken to leading pilots who've been in the aviation game for a long time who said from the outset this was murder-suicide. Remember, this was a Boeing 777 with 239 people on board, which just disappeared en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. Six Australians lost their lives. It has become one of aviation's biggest mysteries. It shouldn't be. If it were murder-suicide, where the plane finished up wasn't where these expensive searches were taking place. Why did government ignore the advice 
from those who are trained to know? And why does government continue to show little concern about getting the right answers? The pilot had links to the Malaysian political opposition. He was distantly related by marriage to the Prime Minister-in-waiting Anwar Ibrahim, and the plane went missing a day after Mr Anwar was sentenced to what was widely seen as a second politically motivated jail term for sodomy. The pilot of MH370, Zahari, was widely reported to have attended that hearing. Yet an investigation by the Malaysian government concluded there was no evidence Zahari had hijacked his own aircraft. But once Tony Abbott said publicly that as Prime Minister, he'd been told by, quote, the very top levels of the Malaysian government that from very, very early on, they thought it was a murder-suicide by the pilot, it seemed the Malaysian government was covering its backside. The Malaysian Police Inspector General, following Mr Abbott's comments, responded by saying the claims that it was murder-suicide couldn't be verified unless the plane was found. Well, how convenient, because pilots in the know constantly said they were searching in the wrong place. That knowledge was ignored. A lot of taxpayers' money has been wasted, and you can't escape the conclusion that a lot of people are in the cover-up industry. Well, Craig Pitt is a former lawyer who concentrates on writing and research. I could have spoken to any number of pilots, but he has done work on the disappearance of the Malaysian Airlines MH370 in March 2014, and Craig joins me from a very interesting perspective. Craig, thank you for your time. Now, you've done a lot of work on this MH370, but you've talked about the decision on August 3 recently by the Albanese government that a review of the Defence Force, long overdue, I might add, if it were to be conducted by the right people, will be conducted by the former Labor Defence Minister Stephen Smith and the retired Defence Force Chief Sir Angus Houston. You have concerns, as do I, about Houston for a variety of reasons. Now, forget for a moment that he's made very sympathetic, sympathetic observation about China, saying things like China is our partner and China is not an enemy. But this is the same Houston who was head of the Australian-led search for MH370. First question, Craig, do you think that search was compromised by Australia being too readily accommodating of requests from its partners, Malaysia and China? Well, that is the criticism, Alan, and it certainly appears that way. The search all the way through from the beginning, in broad terms, the criticism of the search was that it limited itself to a single theory only, that theory being that the plane crashed in this particular zone of the southern Indian Ocean west of Perth. So the search was restricted to that theory only, and all other all other uh, evidence and expert opinion, of which there was no shortage, was bluntly excluded. Now, you've been in your introduction there, you were talking about the theory that's supported by Byron Bailey and several other senior people in the aviation industry that the plane w was further south due to it being a pilot yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, suicide. But that is only one theory. This is a strong theory, certainly, but that is only one. There's also expert evidence that it may have crashed in the South China Sea immediately upon uh, coming off. into trouble. Mm. There's expert evidence that it might have crashed in the Andaman Sea. There's expert evidence that it might have crashed in the Bay of Bengal. And there's 100 other theories. 
Um, and one of the strange things about MH, the MH370 mystery, Alan, is that, you know, with every single theory that's out there, there's at least one small piece of evidence or more to support it. So when you lay all the evidence out on the table with MH370, it's a scene of utter inconsistency and confusion and chaos. Well, Craig, who, who, dreamt up, that, uh, Craig who dreamt up the notion yeah. that the plane had crashed west of Perth? Well, that was a uh, that was due to the Inmarsat data, the satellite data, Alan, uh, from the uh, British-based company Inmarsat. Uh, through their mathematical calculations, they came up with. The, I mean, the key thing here with the Inmarsat data, data, it is it's a likelihood. It, from the very beginning, it was no more than a likelihood that the plane had come down in that zone. Mm. Um, it we, was we spent a, a lot of money. We spent a lot of money on that likelihood. Yeah. I mean, Houston's in charge, and you have talked about these quote your words skullduggery going on under their noses. What did you mean by that? Well, what I was talking about there, one of the criticisms, if I can explain it, Alan, is that the whole Australian effort, search effort, was too British, too, too had a sense of old-fashioned British propriety. Just let me explain by what I mean by that is that as soon as it was thought that the plane was west of Perth, it's like Australia trotted out on the scene uh, like the white knight come to save the day. Then we had British-born Australian Prime Minister of the time, Tony Abbott, appointed British-born Angus Houston to head the search. And from that point on, it seems like the search was conducted by Houston and Abbott and others in the team with too much, they're too conscious of their own sense of propriety and probity to notice the skullduggery going on under their noses. Right. That is the allegation against right. them. Well, then you said, Houston said this, the surface search went on longer than normally would be the case, and that was because of the sensitivities from our partners. What the hell does that mean? Well, that's just one of several quotes that I could have chosen, but it's just a typical type of line where... It, there's a possible perception of skullduggery going on by the partners, uh, China and Malaysia, and Houston and his team are oblivious to it. And when it finds expression from Houston, it comes out in the line like that, just saying, oh, the surface search was extended for longer because of the sensitivities of our partners, but we don't know what those sensitivities yes, indeed. were. Indeed, I mean... If I can say... Yeah. I I don't on, understand. Sorry. I mean, the plane was en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, hence China and Malaysia. How on earth could sensitivities towards China and Malaysia be affected by sensibly trying to find out what happened and where the plane finished up? How would that affect sensitivities with China and Malaysia? Well, I don't understand either. You know, the, 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 everybody, the allegation is, of course, that, it, that it's a cover-up. Uh, that there's been some disaster here. And the one thing from my own point of view, Alan, if I can say, uh, I mean, I'm not an aviation expert. I'm not a scientist. I'm just someone who's read reasonably widely about the, of the experts' opinions of others. But one thing that's always struck me about MH370 is that this was a flight, although it was a Malaysian Airlines flight, in real terms it was owned by China. It was a flight to Beijing. More than half of the people on board were Chinese nationals. It first met with trouble whilst 
over the South China Sea, just entering into the South China Sea. The South China Sea was militarised at the time. It's always struck me as a coincidence that um, a plane, a triple seven, should vanish. It's never happened before. Extraordinary event, mm. and yet this event is so connected Ab- with China. Absolutely. So, I think um, I think we just end here by saying what what has Craig has said and written, and I quote: "Nothing confirms the intellectual shortcomings." of the Western world more than its willingness to accept that a modern Boeing 777 can vanish without criminal interference of some kind. And Houston is one of the people suspected of this naivety. I don't think anyone could disagree with that. Craig, look, we'll leave it there. I want to go on with this because this is now sort of unresolved. It's disappeared into the ether. Uh, Nothing is happening. And yet people have died and we need to find some answers as to why they died and who was culpable. But thank you for your input and keep at it and we'll keep in touch. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Alan. Not at all a researcher, Craig Pitt. I mean, he said Houston never addressed these concerns in any detail and now seems reluctant to say anything critical of the Chinese Communist Party at all. And this bloke's having a review into the Defence Force. Very interesting stuff, Sir Angus Houston. I think you need to earn your knighthood and your money and answer a couple of questions. Not a day passes without discussion and headlines about China. We've got to get over the rhetoric of war. Some realities are unavoidable. China's a neighbour and a massive trading partner, a big economy and getting bigger, and a powerful international figure. China's not going away. Today, the Chinese government has launched another attack on Australia, saying Australia would be breaching its own rules if it refused to block Australia's nuclear submarine fleet. China has written indeed to the International Atomic Energy Agency ahead of its September board meeting, urging the agency to intervene. But the International Atomic Energy Agency Director General, Rafael Grossi, on Monday welcomed the engagement of Australia, the US and the UK, saying that he expected all three countries, quote, would deliver on their stated commitment to ensuring that the highest non-proliferation and safeguard standards are met, unquote. And Penny Wong, who has to be given credit for the work she's done to date in foreign affairs, said that Australia was, quote, fully committed to our obligations under the non-proliferation treaty, unquote. But it does raise questions about the anxiety amongst the Chinese leadership. The Chinese Communist Party have a national congress every five years. The next one opens on October 16. It could be said it's more significant than any in recent memory because Xi Jinping is expected to secure a third term as president after nearly a decade in power. But it's problematic whether Xi will be given an even greater mandate than he currently enjoys. There are danger signs for China on the economic front and the worry for the world is What risks may the Chinese leadership take to keep up with their drive for world power or to realise the dream of Xi to catch up with the United States? Some reports as recent as last week argue that the knives are out for China's paramount leader Xi as he tries to position himself as dictator for life. And even if he succeeds, his drive for power will continue, some argue, to ferment opposition that may well prompt decisions that threaten global security. A professor at the Communist Party Central Party School for 14 years before fleeing the country in 2012 
after criticising the polities of Xi. Professor Kaya Zia has described President Xi as a mafia don whose family connections allowed him to rise without trace through the ranks of the Chinese Communist Party. She writes that behind the scenes, Xi Jinping's power is being questioned as never before. That by discarding China's long tradition of cabinet rule and creating a cult of personality reminiscent of the one that surrounded Mao Zedong, Xi Jinping has angered party insiders. And according to the Professor Xi, is facing growing opposition from all political factions, and there are doubts about the powerful military's respect for Xi. But the professor does add, the most likely outcome is that Xi Jinping, having so rigged the process and intimidated his rivals, will get his third presidential term, unquote. But in this geopolitical environment, where the West is completely lacking in leadership and Biden is a cognitive wreck, this Chinese professor predicts that Xi will see victory at the Congress in a matter of weeks as a mandate to do what he wants. But Xi still faces very significant headwinds. COVID-19 lockdowns are spreading across China and new outbreaks are testing the country's long-standing zero COVID policy. Only last week, one correspondent made the point that about 313 million people are under lockdown, including in major cities such as Chengdu and Shenzhen. But the zero COVID policy has trapped China in economic and political stagnation. Retail sales, industrial output and investment have all missed the estimates of economists. The International Monetary Fund has cut its forecast of China's 2022 GDP growth to 3.3%, the slowest pace in four decades. There's 20% youth unemployment in the cities, the highest ever. There's been a record-breaking drought, which has caused parts of the Yangtze River to dry up. And the Yangtze is China's most important river, which provides water to more than 400 million Chinese people. And the loss of water to China's extensive hydropower system has created problems. So President Xi will need more than luck on his side when he bids for a mandate for life at the Congress starting October 16. But Australia can do without the war rhetoric. Our economic fortunes are tied to those of China. China is easily our largest two-way trading partner, accounting for a third of all trade. For example, in June, our exports to China topped 16 billion one month. In fact, trade with China in June was about 140 times the level it was 40 years ago. But over and above all of this, China is battling to contain what could be the biggest property crash the world has ever seen, which would create a perilous moment for the country's communist leadership to say nothing of the global economy. Three points emerge. We have a massive diplomatic job to repair the damage in our relationship with China. The second thing is that China may be domestically at its weakest point. How do we handle that? And the third thing is that on all available evidence, surely, as John Howard has written in his latest book, quote, in a knockdown drag out fight, Taiwan would not be easy to subjugate and a defeated and resentful Taiwan would prove a costly and resource consuming Chinese province, unquote. President Xi has his hands full. So have we in relation to the immediate foreign policy challenges. Before we go, 
There's an alarming new report published by an outfit called Equidia Investment Research titled, The Biggest Weapon Against America, Your Teen's Phone. Teens, teenagers. As Judge Judy would say, listen up. The report's findings are as relevant to the parents and children of Australia as they are to the parents and children of America. Listen to this. According to Equidia, quote, the biggest threat to our national security isn't nukes or a third world war, it's an algorithm on your teen's phone. And it's called TikTok. It may may sound absurd, but hear me out. TikTok's a Chinese-made and owned social media platform that's taken the world by storm. Over a billion people use the platform every month. That's one quarter of all adults outside China. Every year, TikTok attracts 200 million more users. Nine out of 10 users visit the social network daily and spend an average of around five to 7% of their waking time on TikTok. But it's not just the addictive nature of TikTok that is the issue. That's only the beginning. As Equidia wrote, TikTok, quote, doesn't let users choose what they want to see. Instead, its secret algorithm serves you an infinite reel of videos tailored to your liking based on all the data they acquire. That's about you. But under the guise of this convenient programming lies the world's biggest stealth propaganda operation, unquote. Now here's where it gets interesting. As soon as you download the app ByteDance, and by extension, the Chinese Communist Party, ByteDance is an arm of the Chinese Communist Party. So you download TikTok, ByteDance, own TikTok, ByteDance are an arm of the Chinese Communist Party, and therefore they can see your child's location at hourly intervals, contacts, all apps, files, and active subscriptions. TikTok has 100% visibility of your child's clipboard. In other words, it can monitor and store your keystrokes, including the passwords that you type out on the phone. And according to Equidia, all this data, quote, is being sent back to China. It doesn't stop there. The Chinese Communist Party also has, quote, an army of bots to engage with its content, to shape public opinion in its favor. Very much like Twitter has been used for spreading Chinese propaganda and spreading COVID news, unquote. For example, TikTok was one of the main hubs endorsing the Black Lives Matter movement and supporting the defunding of police, generating a whopping 4.9 billion views on the Black Lives Matter hashtag. As Equidia writes, quote, what could China gain from inciting racism, violence and divisiveness in the US? It says, you can figure that one out. That's it for me tonight. (laughs) Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at eight o'clock. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.